The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. You're listening to Business Is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business Is Boring is made by The Spin-Off with help from Callaghan Innovation, New Zealand's innovation agency. Here's your host, Simon Pound. You might remember a few years ago, a couple of New Zealand lads blew up on Kickstarter with their clever carry-on bag. With a short fun video and a cool traveller-friendly bit of kit full of compartments and tech device friendliness, they landed more than 10 times their target and then managed to deliver on time that much larger than expected order. Then they did it again with their second bag, except much better. The brand is Manal, a much-loved essential for many travellers with its high-quality price tag, community of supporters and minimalist design it's become a global hit. The two founders landed on the idea as a way to continue a life lived abroad. And it's working, with today's guest, co-founder Jimmy Hayes, here on a trip back from Japan, one of their biggest markets and one of his home bases. To talk making a dream into a life, global success, taking on an industry with massive incumbents and the power of the crowd, Jimmy Hayes joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora. Hey, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. Um, Looking through your story, it's so cool that, um, yeah, one of the things that you've said in past interviews is that you started the company because you were basically unemployable. Tell, tell me about um, tell me about the, the life you were living prior to uh, to setting up that Kickstarter that people would have first seen you in. Yeah, uh, I guess it, it depends if you're talking about me or my co-founder because I was <laughs> I was relatively unemployable. Um, I was doing okay, but just taking off a lot and and going and traveling and. My uh, my co-founder now my business partner uh, Doug was quite unemployable. Um, and, and, <laughs> not and, not here to defend yeah, himself. Yeah, yeah, just throw him <laughs> under the bus immediately. Ten seconds in, um, but he, he was just mostly very very passionate about doing his own thing, um, and and a born entrepreneur, one of those people that was you know selling things at five years old and that sort of thing. Um, so I think mostly it was just trying to. Um, make sure that we were building a life that would keep us going in the long term because he certainly didn't feel like being employed was was his future and i think he just um slowly dragged me into that (laughs) vibe after a while you know he'd call me up and say we've got tickets to vietnam in three months okay take time off you know set set the scene what were you guys doing then because uh if people have seen that first kind of kickstarter Mm -hmm. video that kicked it all off there's that great story about how you and a bunch of mates were driving around the world in cars and, 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 and jet-setting everywhere. Yeah, so we, we met on exchange uh, in Canada at Uni Exchange. So it was last year of uni, we were in Vancouver, and we decided to circumnavigate North America, basically. Um, 
with three others. So five people in a m minivan, you know, a soccer mom minivan in, in, in the States. And um, that was the, the start of everything. That was the kind of wanderlust catalyst moment. Um, but it wasn't until a few years later when we were still traveling a bit, but also having to balance it with work, real life, you know, <laughs> not just uni life, um, that we, we started to think, well, how can we kind of shift this to be even more about travel? Um, how can we make sure that, you know, we're not disappointing our bosses when we go and spend six weeks in, in Vietnam? Um, and so it, it really was a, a gradual thing. And like I say, Doug slowly kind of drew me over to the dark side of entrepreneurship. Um, but it really was every single part of, of um, our friendship before then kind of led up to that moment or, or that change in direction because um, as we... As we traveled, we learned more about life on the road. We uh, grew less satisfied with our, with our jobs back in New Zealand. And um, I think we, um, we felt like uh, if we continued along the path that we were on, um, we probably wouldn't go anywhere that fast because we just, our hearts weren't in it. And what were the, was this kind of the first idea you landed on or were there other things along the way? Many others. <laughs> Many, I mean, it's the, the typical typical story of uh, a lot of great slash maybe not that great ideas that have that have kind of died along the way but um we were doing uh, we uh, filmed a tv pilot um traveling around northland and, and meeting people there went to the waipu highland games and videoed that and and that was a lot of fun and kind of paused that for a while and then we were making a essentially the shirt version of the bag so uh, a business shirt that you can travel with really easily and that's quite common now but uh, back then it wasn't so common uh, there was only like old man shirts that that were um, you know made by Columbia or whoever that weren't cool at all um, and I think through all of those things even though not all of them either worked out or because we didn't have the passion to pursue them again they all led to that that moment of uh, of getting to the bag and realizing that the the lessons we learned on the previous ideas and those flaming failures that we had um, actually put us in really in a really good position um, for for making the bag and and luckily we hadn't got ourselves into too big of a hole at that point um, that we could successfully launch it from the outside people probably just see you know a Kickstarter page the way that they first would have seen you how many years ago is that now 2013 late 20, 2013 late, late, yeah. late, late 2013 uh, so seven years ago they'd see the page and they'd see a video and some copy and some photos and they'd probably go Oh, yeah, there's probably not that much that goes into yeah, it before you. Yeah, slap it together, you. mate. Yeah, film it on the weekend. <laughs> but like when you're putting together a prototype of a bag and then working out if you can actually produce it and then getting feedback from people and then, yeah, like talk me through just how much work like you had to go through before, before you landed because that's a big investment. Yeah. So I guess uh – Timeline-wise, that's the easiest one, and I, I think we were working on the Kickstarter itself for sort of six months because there's a kind of couple of products, right? There's the bag product, and then there's the Kickstarter page product, mm. um, and you're working on both of them uh, at the same time. We'd, we'd spent a few years looking at bags, um, backpacks, luggage, all that area, uh, and and then for the last six months, we, we were building the campaign, um, but... It was it was obviously a lot of work. I think the biggest thing was that we didn't know what we were doing, <laughs> so so we had no background. Uh, Doug was a, a lawyer, had worked in sort of project management stuff. I was from uh, a TV and film background, um, 
And so, you know, we had no industrial design experience, no international logistics experience. We were trying to go global from day one, that old chestnut. And and so it was really um, difficult to know what was coming. And I think that naivety was helpful, actually. Um, but man, I mean, the work was, you know, a year solid for, you know, six, seven days a week sort of thing. The biggest thing is that it was... Uh, it was stuff that we didn't know how to do. So we were learning while we were executing, if that makes sense. And when you say, you know, we, we didn't know what we didn't know, that might have helped. Mm. Looking at it from the outside now, like uh, that industry is controlled by some really big players. Like a lot of the biggest brands people know, um, they may not know that they all come from the same companies. Uh, yep. These kind of entrenched distribution networks. Uh, the equipment that you need to make luggage can be wildly expensive and these are things that yeah like um not knowing might help you to get going because it's it might otherwise be too scary yeah i mean it's definitely one of those industries uh where it's that that cliche of uh you really probably don't want to know what you're getting yourself into um because everything said that we should not be successful um and i think we were just really lucky in terms of timing that that things were becoming more democratized or, or whatever you know with kickstarter coming out crowdfunding in general um and then just being able to access all these different services that were kind of just coming out the internet was you know in 2013 was really blossoming in a, in a lot of different ways and uh and i think that timing you know was such a big factor in the success but but also the complete obliviousness that that we had in terms of what we were going up against. Yeah, I know what you mean about like that was a kind of time when things were blossoming, like trust, like trusting some strangers to give them some money to give it a shot. Yeah, there's a real kind of optimism and kind of coolness about that that <laughs> hadn't existed maybe before that, and uh, yeah. people are now a bit more cynical again. I was going to say maybe it, it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, it? yeah. T- tell me about what led you to Kickstarter. It was, it was a kind of a no-brainer for us. And again, just lucky timing, we were looking at ways to launch the product and launch the company. And um, and we were aware of Kickstarter um, and, and crowdfunding in general. And it was the biggest barrier for us was the tens of thousands of dollars it was going to cost to make our first run. We'd already sunk a bunch of our own money in it to do the prototype, sampling, all that sort of thing. Um, but obviously to make 500, 1,000, 1,500 at a time, very expensive. Um so when we saw an option that was, hey, actually you can get the money first and then make the stuff, and you know how many people to make them for, I mean, complete no-brainer, right? Yeah, um, and you've proven there's a demand at all. Yeah, exactly, exactly, because the last thing I wanted to do was go out and say, hey, we've got this great thing and this crickets, and you've already spent, whatever, 100 grand on it or whatever. <laughs> and you've got a garage full of things yeah, for the rest of your yeah, life. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So... um yeah, complete no-brainer in terms of crowdfunding. Uh, again, lucky timing uh, and and just an ability to, to see that opportunity and also um, do some dark arts because at that time, Kickstarter was only available for US-based projects um, and to prove that you're a US-based project was uh, difficult and you had to do some things um, that we did and successfully got it through and lived in fear of Amazon payments for a while. Um, but but we got through that and, and it was... Um, it was all good, and and it you know we can we wouldn't be here uh, today if it wasn't for Kickstarter, if it wasn't for crowdfunding, for sure. And that first crowdfund had like a thirty k target, and uh, ended up being odd ten times that. Do you? And this is you know um, you don't want to, like magician give away the secrets, but do you actually set it at something 
purposefully low and know that you've got enough mates that you can call in to hit it. Uh, but what were you actually hoping for? And, and were you surprised by the result? Yeah, well, I'm a magician that all other magicians hate because I'm just an open book. I don't, I don't care about telling anyone, whatever. But uh, no, I mean, what we did was a pretty basic thing, which was how much is this going to cost uh, to, to make this minimum order? Um, and then if we got, let's say, five grand less than that in a crowdfunding campaign, would we make up the other five? You know, are we su- sufficiently um, impressed by the response to say, okay, this is a thing, you know? And the answer was yes. And then, okay, you got a seven and a half K, 10 K, whatever it is. And eventually we got to the point of, uh, yeah, I think it was 30, where it was like, you know, if we got less than this, I'm not sure we'd be confident enough to throw in our own money to make up the difference. So uh, as it turned out, we didn't need to worry about it that much, but you always got to prepare for, for the best and worst case scenarios. And, um, and that's how we worked backwards from what it was going to cost us to what we were actually um, asking for, essentially. And and what did you kind of hope to get out of it? And, and, and you know, what was your reaction? I, I really, I had no hopes. I was just completely in the dark. I mean, we'd never done anything like that before. Um, we, like I say, had no background in it. Um, crowdfunding itself was pretty new. Um, there weren't that many examples of, bad Kickstarters really we looked at every single one on Kickstarter before we launched and, and still were you know we'd learned some things but we, we just had no idea um, and I think we went past the initial target in about six minutes or something and that was uh, one a complete surprise but two the best feeling in the world yeah. because it's something that we'd been you know basically stuck in a bag cave for six twelve months or whatever and suddenly there's people throwing down money for you know, like you say, on trust, right? And, um, and and it's not cheap. It wasn't. It was a quality no. offering, yeah. not a cheap offering. Yeah, we're at the premium end for sure. And and so and obviously with Kickstarter, you're getting a, a pre-sale discount, but or pre-sale pricing. But at the same time, it's you know, it was it was no joke, and we had a lot of people telling us before we launched, "That's crazy. You can't charge that much for a bag." What, about two hundred American or something. Uh, so at that time, well, the retail was three hundred American, and then. I think you could get it for two thirty on Kickstarter or something right. like that, and so, so it's, it's not trivial. No, no, God no, and 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 that's you know that's uh, that's where we sit, um, and we tried to tell a story about why that was the price. Um, you're paying for quality. You're paying for something you'll use for many years to come. Um, often the cheapest bag is the one that you you know the quality one that you actually pay more for over time. It's, it works out, um, but I think. What we what we really focused on was just um, explaining that to people, and now the market's reasonably mm. proven. I'm not saying that we proved the market, but mm. now there's a ton of boutique bag makers out there, which is great, um, and and there's not so much surprise about price tags. But back then, it was definitely um, there were a ton of people telling us you can't sell a bag for that much. Um, we half believed them. We didn't know, but what we knew was. The amount we'd invested in getting it to a certain standard um, required that sort of price tag. So we're yeah. going to live and die by it no matter what. Yeah. And the best way to silence uh, naysayers is to get it out there and give it a try. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And like from that, I mean, there's been real similarities to your, your, your next uh, steps as well. But from that video, like how much of the success of that do you think was the product being the thing that people were after? And how much was it, was the kind of personable approach uh, the re, you know you, you really felt like you knew you guys after that couple right. of minutes and um, yeah it was like you know we've never made a bag and uh, but we've made a really great one uh, trust us and and it kind of really worked yeah 
I, I mean, I don't, I can't speak for for the people who who backed us, but I think from the feedback we got, it seemed, you know, fifty fifty mix. I think at that point, especially the um, the features were pretty new uh, to the market, and and we'd put it in a package that perhaps hadn't been seen in that way before. It was. Um, you know the best, the best and most rugged outdoor components, but inside a kind of a nice, more minimalist, minimalist aesthetic. Um, and so, yeah, I think there was there was obviously the the product side, but but as with anything, it's about how you tell the story, about how you present yourself, um, about what you care about, about what you believe. And I think we were able to especially back then you know we're from New Zealand we're kind of weird and different and we have strange accents so and and you know early on and, and even still the US is our major market so um there was just a sense of of newness about it all and and I think we were confident enough in the product that that unlocked us to be able to say hey you know not and still a Kiwi way like hey I think we've made something pretty sweet do you want to check it out you know yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not the full sales pitch but 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 um, because we were actually using that product day to day, right? It, it was a thing that we were using. We built it for ourselves and we hoped that other people would jump on board. Um, and, and when you got that kind of um, response 10 times what you'd put up, that has been the undoing of many successful projects in that uh, way where they get a great order and then they can't deliver it on Rest time and peace. then everyone's having peace. a miserable time. And, yeah. But not Manal. No, no, we were reasonably prepared. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to claim we were fully prepared, but yeah, I mean, so many, especially back then, I think so many projects just weren't doing the, the, the due diligence and weren't planning ahead. People weren't thinking about, oh, it actually costs something to ship something to the other side of the world. Um, and that was the undoing of a lot of projects. And, and I think Doug, uh, as well as being reasonably unemployable, <laughs> is also reasonably risk-averse. Yeah. Uh, and so he was doing all of the research on all of the things and making sure that we weren't, we weren't going to make promises that we couldn't keep. Because I think we both knew that, and again, possibly just as Kiwis, um, y- the worst thing is to say you're going to do something and then not do it. Um, we wanted to be uh, very conservative with our time estimates. We pushed it out to, I think, six months, whereas a lot of people were promising it by Christmas. And of course, they didn't hit that. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a combination of being careful, making sure we communicated things well, and making sure we we knew, you know, very basic numbers before we actually put it out there and, and mm. promised people things. And then on the back of that successful raise and successful uh, delivery, uh, you did it all again. And we'll be back in a minute to hear more about that soon. If you love the spin-off, the best way to show it is to become part of the spin-off members. This is the fund that helps us keep free and accessible to all without a paywall. It also funds some of our most important and acclaimed journalism. You can pay what you want. Check it out through the spin-off. Now, a couple of years later, using that same approach, you went back out through Kickstarter with a kind of renewed carry-on piece and then another bag as well. And that one was if the first one was successful, like, this one went off the charts, eh? Uh, It felt that way, yeah, yeah. And it wasn't any less special as well, I think. You always have that. When you're about to release something, you always have that fear, right? And and if you ever lose that fear, there's maybe something wrong. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, uh, it was kind of cheating because we had more products that we were selling. So, of course, the number gets higher. But, but yeah, it was, um, I mean, I was, again, surprised and, again, really stoked. Walk us through the, what was your target and what did you hit? 
I think that uh, we maybe put the target around somewhere similar. Oh no, maybe we dropped it. It was somewhere around 20k US or something like that, and we ended up at 707, I think. Um, so yeah, 707,000, and uh, and yeah, and then got to work the next morning. You know, just thinking, well, we've got a lot more people relying on us now, and uh, and it made it even more real. That's so amazing for a company to know that they've got a all of the orders. But B, like that kind of relationship and support from a community, because the hardest yeah. thing for a business to find is, you know, the end customer. You can sell to a retail store, but you don't know if someone will buy it at the yeah. end. How important is that kind of direct relationship with those people? Super important. I mean, yeah, that's that's everything to us. Um, we care about the experience that people have. And we were just talking about the, the first Kickstarter and, and, again, just treating people well and treating people like they were our friends, essentially, which they were in a lot of cases, um, was super important because we knew that, first of all, it's just the right thing to do. But second, that's what starts long-term relationships with a, a company, between company and, and customers and, and users and all you know, the community in general. Um, so one of the greatest feelings for us was that in the second Kickstarter, so many of the people that were coming back were people that had backed the first one, uh, which was two years earlier. And to have that higher percentage of, of repeat customers and, and people saying, hi, I'm back. Yeah, I really loved the first one. I'm back for the second one. Um, there's no greater feeling. And, and I think cultivating that direct relationship and, and having those conversations with people as peers or as friends or as you know part of the same community um, is just it's it, like I say, it's everything to us. What's the mix today of how you do things, like in terms of that direct to consumer, uh, keeping that relationship with them, or retail, or what? what, what how do you run it? Yeah, we're hundred percent through our own website. Yeah, direct to direct to customer, and um, I mean th- that might change at some point. But the thing that stopped us uh, in the past in terms of retail is just trying to find people who give the same level of experience. Um, like you said earlier, you, we're a premium product, and uh, part of that is not just being a product, but being a service and being a relationship, and a, you know, an ongoing, uh, a good warranty, an ongoing relationship, all that sort of stuff. And and unless we can find partners that that are going to give that same sort of um, service and relationship and everything else, we we don't want to sacrifice um, the the products into that environment. So. Uh, it's it's super important to us, and again, I'm you know I'd never say it's never going to happen, but um, but at the moment, just being completely through our own website, um, going you know, having everyone's contact details and being able to say, hey, what do you think? Um, tell us about the products. That's yeah, that's super important to us. And and yeah, and not not I mean, the price tag is uh, you know very good for that level of premiumness in a bag, but I imagine that you know when you were saying people like you could never sell it for that online. Retail is so often such a key part of being able to touch and feel and know about the componentry and being able to kind of, you know, trust a, a, an investment purchase like that that you're going to love and use for years. So, yeah, I mean, I wonder along the way, like, you know, do people tell you it would just never work or you could never do it? And what was it that, like, meant that you kind of trusted and dug in and, and delivered it? Yeah, constantly people told us that. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like it was just full of, my world was full of haters or anything. There's a lot of people who I'm very thankful um, mm. uh, who, were, who were super supportive. Uh, but there were definitely, you know, uh, voices of reason and reality. Um, I, I think, you know, by 2013, obviously crowdfunding was a thing. And definitely e-commerce was not as... Um, developed as it is now but it was still people were still you know buying stuff online and trusting it 
And, uh, you know, so we'd get people testing it out and sending it back if it wasn't for them. Um, so I think, you know, it, it, was a, it, it wasn't the dark ages in terms of e-commerce, which helped. Um, if we'd been two, five years earlier, maybe, um, it might have been a bit different. But we were honestly, we were surprised um, by by how willing people were to say, "Okay, there's a backpack. I put that on my body." You know, it's like clothing. Um, you don't know, and it's quite scary buying it online. But for whatever reason, and I don't necessarily know what it is, um, people were willing to take that risk and and are continuing to take that risk with us. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a, a mix of just the the internet growing up and us being able to tell a good story and us showing that we can be trusted uh, and, and people really wanting the product and knowing they can only get it from us. So, you know, there's not a store you can go into. Um, yeah, tell me about that design philosophy, that kind of minimalism has really worked. But also there's a bunch of like uh, quite kind of um, niche product developments that you've had in terms of the way that the weight is suspended, the kind of compartments for everyone's tech toys and stuff that really kind of speak to a really particular understanding of how a consumer wants to use something. Yeah, I think we uh, we didn't necessarily have it uh, explicit in the early days. We didn't we weren't able to maybe verbalize uh, the the essence of our design philosophy. It just kind of came from being on the road and wanting to use it ourselves, you know. Um, but as it as we went on, we realized that really what we try and the the things that we build, we try and build them so that people can focus on what's important. So everyone knows the feeling of being on a work trip or being on a pleasure trip, leisure trip, whatever, uh, and feeling like their luggage is getting in their way, feeling like they're not able to move fast through security or they're not able to get work done from the road or something because their gear is just letting them down. It's bulky or it's too heavy or it's um, the zips are in the wrong places or whatever. And so, for, for again, whether it's work or whether it's leisure, you just want to be focusing on the thing that you're there to focus on. And so anything that we, that's kind of our, our gold standard for any sort of feature or removing a feature or, or changing a fabric or anything like that, does it help people um, get less distracted? Does it, you know, does it make sure that they're not distracted by the thing that they're using? Uh, and does it help them focus on what's really important? And that kind of style around it, because uh, backpacks, um, especially, you know, when you were getting started, they probably weren't always seen as sleek design items and maybe had more of a kind of, I don't know, school backpack or yeah. kind of, you know, outdoor sportsy kind of chunky kind of vibe to them. Tell me about making like a design product out of that. Yeah, again, it was just self-generated. I, I think we were, um, we weren't in the luxury range as consumers ourselves, right, as customers, as users. So um, we were looking for something that wasn't in the, you know, Gucci, Prada, Tumi, whatever range. Um, but we And we wanted it to hold up on the road, but we also wanted to be able to go into a meeting and not be embarrassed. Um, and so a backpack was the obvious choice in terms of traveling around you know, Southeast Asia, um, you don't want wheels going through those streets. Or even, you know, Europe, cobblestones, I don't want to be dragging some wheels over that. And so for us, it was a no-brainer to be using backpacks. But um, we very quickly realized that the hiking bags that we had um, were just going to get us laughed out of any sort of meetings we went into while we were over there. So um, it was, again, just scratching our own itch and saying, hey, well, why don't, you know, it sounds kind of basic, but why don't we make something that is rugged, um, that does let us be um, agile and, and move quickly, but also 
uh, that we can roll into, you know, after coming on a chicken bus for two hours across the, you know, Vietnamese highlands or whatever, go into a meeting and, and um, successfully convince them that we're not just some, you know, randoms that, that aren't worth doing business with. <laughs> Random backpackers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, that idea of travel being, you know, so in the DNA of the, the company and that living abroad and being able to keep being kind of citizens of the world – Tell me how that's held up as uh, you've got quite a distributed kind of team and approach and, and market. Yeah, it's held up pretty well. I mean, it's evolved over time. Um, uh, we don't have an office. Uh, our offices are cafes and, and apartments um, around the world. Um, and I think we're in most continents right now in, t- in terms of the team. Um we have, I mean, I've personally evolved. So when we started, I was just on the road 11 and a half months a year just moving around or buying one-way tickets um, no matter what. And I've, I've really settled down in terms of um, hub-and-spoke model almost, you know, having, having a base or two around the place and then just doing little trips from there. Um, and that, that's what suits me in, in my phase of life right now. But I think... Well, first of all, Doug is still definitely on the on the one way ticket bus, um, and so he's still living that dream. But um, yeah, I think we're we're we've broadened what we were doing, and that's really helped the product. So um, while it was at first somewhat one dimensional in terms of this is for people who are on the road all the time, um, now it's much more about movement in general. Um, so you might be traveling from your office to your home or mm. from the gym to a co-working space or whatever it is. Yeah, riding your bike. Riding your bike, exactly. Um, and as long as we can, again, help you focus on what's important during that journey, then then we want to be doing that. So obviously, still a huge part of the DNA, um, the the travel vibe and the, and the living abroad and, and all that sort of stuff, remote work, everything like that. But, but it's about more than that now and it doesn't matter if the you know your trips are long haul like we used to take or extreme short haul like within a city or a town um we want to be making things that make that life easier for you right and there's a nice kind of thing i I had a little um poke around the website and saw the uh makers and movers and that kind of concept of like movement is is really across everything of course um Kind of influencers that aren't influencers, people who actually do substantial things rather than just kind of like grow online gardens full of people uh, who are watching them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think that was, uh, to use maybe an influencing term, is quite organic. Um, we were just really fascinated by the people who were using our stuff and often living much more interesting lives and doing more interesting things than we were, actually. Um, so... From there, it was just like, well, who out there is doing things that really align with what, what we believe in and what we see in our community every day? Um, and let's start highlighting them. Um, and so we started doing that. And obviously, it was a super inspirational project. I was blown away by by the different people we found doing different cool things. Um, I was lucky enough to either know or meet some of those people. And, and um, yeah, I, I, um, I think that what felt really good was having it come from the having the inspiration come from the community in the first place turning around and saying okay who's at the top of their game in terms of being you know having a life full of movement and also making things um and then going out and finding those people and then you know in reverse being inspired and then and then channeling that back out to the community again it was just an amazing amazing experience and you spend your time split between new zealand and japan uh you know we're not also visiting markets or whatever how the heck do you actually make 
a business work that doesn't have an office, pops up in cafes, has you know founders all around the place and distributed um, you know makers and marketers and markets and the like. Like, what kind of things do you have to do to to stay in touch, and what kind of tools and stuff do you use? Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, it's a lot of a lot of work, honestly. Um, and there's a lot we don't know. Just you know, upfront, I think we are still figuring it out. Um, th- a lot of the time, we feel dysfunctional because we're really pushing uh, some boundaries in terms of how a business can be structured and can be run. Uh, and and over time, there are new tools being made. But some of the ones that we use, I mean, Slack. We're always on Slack. Uh, we're in Quip, which is kind of a Google Docs uh, that's slightly better. Um, there's um, Zoom for video calls. That's a pretty critical one. Uh, my, uh, what is it, World Time Buddy, I think it's called. That's, a, I mean, t- time zones are the, if we could get rid of time zones, I'd be super stoked. Uh, but th- those things are the, the kind of backbone of the day-to-day. Um, but really, it's more about the approach that you bring to it, I think. And you have to be, you have to think of the work in a very different way. You have to be more comfortable with, uh, collaborating with people asynchronously rather than in real time, and look, there are, there are great points about being in person and uh, and collaborating, you know, creatively in person. And we try and get together in person every now and again just to keep that alive. Um, but at the same time, day to day, we're saying, okay, well, we have to sort of unlearn the things that we learned in, in our careers beforehand, um, and really try and set a new way of working and and um, one that respects time zones, so I'm not always on 2 a.m. calls, you know. And I imagine that comes down to growing market by market as opposed to just on, you know, a, a broader uh, forum. Like, how do you build out those separate markets without the retail kind of channel? That's a, that's a great question. I guess, I mean, we have been proudly shipping worldwide since day one. Um, the U.S. has always been our biggest market. Uh, Japan is second, I believe. And... It just sort of happened. Uh, yeah, I think, again, Kickstarter was massive in 2013, especially around that time, and um, had a lot of international traffic. And, and it was all based around the US version of the Kickstarter site, so it wasn't so fragmented. Um, so we, on day one, had this quite distributed community as well as quite a distributed team. Uh, and it just kind of kept on going from there. Our biggest, I mean, we don't really advertise that much and it's all, uh, well, mostly word of mouth. And so once you had that tiny little foothold, um, a person only needs to tell a couple of people in their hometown or their home country um, or write about, you know, write a review of the bag in German or whatever, and then it starts showing up. Um, so, yeah, it was just tiny little footholds in the internet and uh, people telling people. And, and over time that grows into something that's more sustainable. Wow. Haven't got to the stage. What's next? That's a, a very good question. <laughs> <laughs> oh God! Uh, no, uh, we've got um, we've got a bunch of products in the pipeline. Um, so that's the that's the bread and butter. We're really excited about uh, about uh, releasing some more products, some upgraded products, all that sort of thing. And uh, and I'm just personally excited to be allowed to use them finally uh, when we when we get them out in the world. And then I think we are trying to. Um, we're trying to extend the way we think about ourselves um, because I think e- even from quite early in the journey, we were uh, we didn't want to be just a bag company. And I think it, it's so obvious that um, we can do more than, than make bags. Uh, and and I, it will always or should always be our, our core focus. But I think things like 
connecting people in a very unconnected world. I mean, we are in a bunch of countries in terms of our presence and, and where we ship to and all that sort of thing. And we have community in a bunch of countries. I think if we can bring like-minded people together um, and and have them, you know, share their weird lives, because most of our people like us live really weird lives. If we can help facilitate those relationships, um, you know, this is very vague, obviously, but I, <laughs> but I think just, just getting people in person in today's world is actually a pretty big achievement and, and can generate some pretty amazing things. Um, and so that's that's kind of on the on the slow cooker at the moment. Ah, that's so cool. And what advice would you have for people who, who have a dream of like doing something that people might think is bananas, taking on a big incumbent in, industry or, or yeah, like, like making a premium product out of the gate? Well, first of all, do it. You know, just just do it. Um, I don't think uh, I think, and I think if you're the type of person that's going to do it, you'll you'll do it. So that's that's probably um, needless advice. But but definitely do it. Um, I think the second thing is, uh, if you if you are someone who ever gets lonely, find a business partner. Um, it's been an amazing journey uh, to go through this with Doug, and I think uh, I would definitely not be, and we would not be where we are as a company um, if the two of us hadn't been working together because we um, we support us each other through through the the times that are tough for each person, um, and then I think you know in terms of taking on an incumbent, it's going to be very difficult to beat a huge company uh, by going cheaper than them. And so we, I mean, we just wanted to make a high quality product, but even strategically, don't come and take on VF Corporation, who owns all of the brands in the world, basically, um, and say, oh, we're going to do it five bucks cheaper, because they're going to do it 10 bucks cheaper, and then they'll kill you. Um, and so if you are small and you're starting out, I just, I think it's, um, yeah, it, you're, you're very likely to be crushed if you try and compete on price, so I'd really, really recommend going premium. That's awesome. And... One last thought that we like to ask people, like you've had some some real cool hits, you know, some real great moments along the journey so far. Like what will success be for you? What would success with Manal be for you? I knew I knew what it was very early on. Uh, I had a definition from day one or even just before we launched. And that was um, I wanted to be I wanted to have the ability to be around uh, the people that I cared about when and where I wanted and to have that level of, of choice uh, and freedom. And uh, we we hit that point. I think I'm I'm able to do that. And and so next, it's sort of thinking. You know, if yourself is in the middle, and then you go outwards from there, it's family, and then outwards from there, it's community. And I think we're at the point where uh, we can start, like I was talking about before, facilitating relationships, bringing people together, helping to create a community of people that are out there, remote working or or. Um, or doing those sort of you know new lifestyles we call them new type lifestyles. Um, if we can start building a, a a community that doesn't exist yet, I think we'll be in a really good place, and I'll personally feel super fulfilled by that. Ah, that's such a cool story. Thank you so much for sharing it today. That's Jimmy Hayes, co-founder of Manal. Thank you. Thank you very much to Alice with Liddell for producing today, and thank you very much for having us along and listening. Uh, if there is anyone that you'd like to hear from on the podcast, hit us up on Twitter at Simon underscore Pound. You've been listening to Business is Boring, presented by Simon Pound. And brought to you by The Spin-Off and Callahan Innovation.
from the Spin-Off Podcast Network, that was Business is Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Business is Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.